This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is The Bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sobe Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My amazing sponsors for season two of One for the Road are Rock Sober, a brand established in 2017 and led by brothers Sean and Lee, who are both in recovery and on a shared mission to inspire and support recovering addicts worldwide. Injecting rock and roll into sobriety, Rock Sober offers merchandise and accessories to inspire and empower its community of sober badasses. The boys have recently launched a new range of alcohol-free beers which are taking the market by storm. Every beer purchased will help Rock Sober on their mission to support and inspire more people in recovery. Their message is clear. You don't need alcohol to have a good time. So let's all rock sober and remember the good times with Rock Sober AF Drink. My guest today on One for the Road is a personal trainer, a menopause fitness coach and a spin instructor. It gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest, the fabulous Kate Roham. So good morning, Kate. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. How are you today? I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. Currently uh, actually in isolation, which is definitely testing uh, a few things, but I'm sure we we will get onto that and talk about that. But yeah, on the whole, doing really well. Oh, that's great. I mean, it is dragging on forever, but we've just got to deal with it, haven't we? So most people that know you would uh, look at you and they would go, wow, you're super fit. You look really, really healthy. Uh, and it just goes to show that um, alcohol doesn't discriminate, does it? And you've had your own demons with that, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. But firstly, I would love to know how it was for you growing up. 
Wow. I mean, that's a loaded question. Um, and it's funny, isn't it? Because I, I was speaking to someone uh, not that long ago about how our childhood uh, impacts our choices. And I definitely think when I look back now and the situation I'm in, lots of things have, have contributed to the dysfunctional relationship that I possibly had with alcohol. Um, and that since stopping has definitely helped me face some of the things, some of the things I'm still yet to face. Um, but on the whole, I had a really lovely childhood I was really really very lucky um I have I have I still have a wonderful mum and a wonderful dad although they did get divorced um but for all intents and purposes um from what I can remember uh we were lucky we would go on holidays um I felt very loved by my parents and my big sister um had two lovely dogs Ben and Brandy and yeah felt felt very secure and I was felt very very lucky and and very supported it's interesting you say about being fit I was bullied at school uh which is where things may have taken a turn towards the the feelings of insecurity that have haunted me for most of my life there were some pretty mean girls out there and I was although everyone who I've spoken to would dispute that fact I felt that I was bubblier, uh, chubbier than the rest of my um, contemporaries. And um, there were, as I say, some pretty nasty girls out there who single-handedly ruined some years of schooling for me um, that subsequently led to um, eating disorders, um, which probably led to my dysfunctional relationship with alcohol. So um, I would say that on on that part, that was uh, possibly where things stemmed or, or started to sort of chip away at me probably for around about the age of 10 or 11. Well, it's awful what um, kids can do back in the days. And I was bullied as well. Actually, I was quite a big kid, but I was bullied by the smallest kid in the class. And he would just go on at me all the time at playground. And it really affected my mental health back then. And and I had a relationship with my mum and mum and dad that couldn't really talk about things, you know, so yeah. I bottled it up a lot. And that wasn't healthy. Yeah, definitely. I think I didn't tell my parents, not because I didn't feel I could talk to them, but, but I came from a background where it was very much, you just pick yourself up and you get on with it. So, um, you know, not that I didn't think I was going to get any attention from it because, you know, my mum was tiger mom and, you know, would protect her cubs. But I definitely learned to put up quite a big uh, shield around myself and from an early age have always just got on with it and kind of coped. You know, I had a big sister. She was 18. still have a big sister. She's 18 months older than me. I would almost say she's a little bit tougher than me, probably still now. I'm actually quite an emotional person from all of the things. And I talk about my my incidences a lot more probably than anyone else in my family. But I definitely felt like a lot of things were possibly swept under the carpet, not because of anything else other than that's kind of what happened back in the day. Um, but I'll never forget actually one time in the playground, I was being chased by some girls and I tripped up over a bench and fell on my face and cut my chin and cut my nose. And I, I think I remember picking myself up and going to the teachers and sort of saying this happened. They were, don't be so daft. Don't be so stupid. You know, you were just playing and you tripped over a bench. And actually, I know I was being chased. I know I tripped over that bench because I was trying to get away. But, you know, if you're consistently kind of told don't be daft or no, that wasn't happening, you, you begin to believe it. Right. And so actually you stop reaching out to people because you don't think you're going to be heard. So what's kind of the point? Yeah, I can really relate to that, actually. And then for me, I moved secondary schools in the second year as well, which was, I think I was 14 
and and that was quite traumatic for me and as I've said on previous podcasts my mum then left and that's when my drinking started so quite heavily in fact so um at what age were you when you first took your first drink crikey I think I was probably around about 14 same same I had an older sister let's not forget so whilst at 16 you know we would we would hang out together everyone would be drinking and I would obviously go along for the ride but I wouldn't actually at that point you know what? I didn't really like alcohol like I am a slight control freak which possibly came later in life but I did I never really liked the feeling at that point of being out of control and actually there was an incident I mean God forbid my sister listens to this or my parents, but there was an incident with my sister, actually. So she must have been 15 in Bushy Park, actually, because we grew up around there. And we got, well, she she got slightly drunk um, and got taken home, actually, in an ambulance. Um, And my dad was furious because obviously we were late home. All I remember is knocking on the door and me being the first one at the door and him going, where, what the, you know, where have you been? What the hell? And then just coming up the road. Uh, And there was my sister. And actually she was brought into the house and put to bed, but she woke up the next day. And and, and my dad didn't really tell her off actually, because I think he thought, well, she'll, she'll feel crap the next day. But you know what you forget when you're sort of 40 is actually at 15, 16, you don't feel crap the next day. You have the capacity to, to kind of keep going. And so actually she wasn't really told off uh, that badly, not like I would to my children, if you do listen to this. So I guess that we, we, you know, not that drinking was accepted in our household, but it was never, ever really frowned upon. Um, And it was a very open house. And we certainly were allowed, which I will still do with my kids. We were allowed to have friends around the whole time, but we were probably quite good at covering up and I think that's how it all starts, isn't it, with kids? It all starts as a bit of a laugh uh, for some. For some, it might start in a place um, where they're feeling quite low. Uh, for me, it, funny enough, it did give me confidence. I was actually quite, I was quite a loud child, but I was actually quite shy and that's often the way. And because I'd been so put down quite a lot, you know, I guess I had a couple of drinks and I came to life and actually around about 14 secondary school, I mean, I'll never forget my worst insult. You know, I, I, was, I was one of those girls that got on with all the boys, like, they were all my mates. They were my friends and girls, I guess, by default, can be a bit envious of that. And the assumption was that, you know, I was putting it about with the boys, which I wasn't just for the record. Um, and I forget one girl. I even remember her name to this day. So if I ever see her. <laughs> don't um, don't, don't. Yeah, I won't mention who she is in case she's listening, but she owes me a huge apology. Um, she called me a pregnant prostitute once. And I remember locking myself in the loo at school. And all the boys going, what's the matter? What's the matter? And I sort of told them and they took my camp. But, you know, she'd called me that because she'd insinuated I was putting about and I was slightly curvy. And so I think I, I, I lacked confidence. And so for me, probably having a drink was that I that numbed that sensation of not feeling good enough. And yeah, that's probably where it's all sort of started. So I was probably about 14. And also to feel accepted as well. Yeah. Because I was really shy. And I think that's why I was bullied, because when I went into this... Uh, second year I remember walking into the classroom I was petrified but I wasn't really that streetwise my upbringing was quite carpenters playing on a Sunday mum doing the roast dinner dad in the garage um, making something on the vice and stuff and I was quite happy at home with my Meccano or Lego and that and when we moved it was quite a rough school and there was all these burly kids in there just looking me up and down and I didn't really fit in but Gradually, when I started drinking at the shops with them, I felt like I did fit in. 
and then I was one yeah. of the gang and that and that's I think what encouraged me to carry on like that it's so sad that we you know I suppose looking back that one feels like that's the way to be in with the crowd wouldn't it be so much better if I don't know for the next generation it would be something else like I suppose but I suppose that does happen if you're not part of a team or you're not part of a sports team you have to find your people right and that's where we kind of probably need to make things more inclusive for everybody so that no kid is left out feeling like they don't belong yeah and I think things are different now you know they're, they're so much different thank the lord but um yeah. and then so going into your 20s and that what did you live like a normal sort of clubby person in your 20s yeah yep <laughs> yeah. yeah I did yeah. Uh, I certainly knew how to party I have, I've had some really 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 good times I've had some really really stupid times I put myself in some really really stupid situations um looking back now and yeah I mean when was my worst time my parents got divorced just before I went traveling I took a year out but I, I would yeah I mean actually go okay so thinking back to that my sister's 18th was not a good experience for me um, I think I was sick by like 10 o'clock and I snogged the back end of a of a horse at her party, you know, it's fancy dress. But again, that was kind of in front of everybody, family, peers, and and at no point was there ever any, you know. But I think I guess people by default, from what I can gather now from my friends that have older kids, they go through that. There's a sort of rite of passage, I guess, to have those experiences. It just depends when they stop, if they stop, and how it manifests itself. Um, but yeah, no, then I went to Manchester and yeah, I pretty much drank, you know every day clubbing scene bed at, if I went to bed you know that was sometimes a good thing I did actually end up sort of partying a little bit too hard that I had to leave Manchester met where I was at after my first year I didn't want to leave Manchester because I didn't really want to come home so I went to Manchester Poly Manchester College even and did HND and multimedia so you know it definitely took over a part of my life um, numbed quite a lot of my senses but it was fun right like you you, you never think it's gonna you never think it's gonna get out of control and I think you and I've spoken about this I definitely have got to places where I've relied on things substances alcohol whatever because I have an addictive personality but I've always been able to kind of take stock and kind of park it you know I think you can maybe some people can certainly in their 20s and 30s and then I after I had this amazing career in uh, film and TV, obviously the party scene is pretty hardcore, uh, rife. And, you know, I, I would say that throughout all of those years, I only ever did just really stupid, stupid things that could have been dangerous and I got away with it, is what I would say. Like, I never, yeah, when I look back, I think, wow. And even when I think back to traveling with my friend, you know, if my daughter was to ever go, you would take risks, right? You'd make stupid, stupid decisions when you're drunk. And when I look back now, I'm scared about what what could have happened when you see other stories in the press. You know, that for me was kind of my 20s and my relationship with alcohol. It was, I would say it was probably normal in comparison to, to what everybody else was doing, but it's just how it then manifests itself and take, takes a grip on you. Whereas a lot of my friends, I guess, as they got in their late 20s, they would have nights off um, and be able to say, no, for me, it was very much something that I have holistically always looked forward to, at like five o'clock of an afternoon, having a drink, probably from about the age of 28, 29. It's sort of that celebratory end of the day. And I think it's when that really begins to take hold that you have to just sit back and think about 
what what it's doing for you yeah I agree I mean when I look back at some of the times I had I mean I even went to an 1830s and there'd be some people listening to this now that don't really know what that is but it was a club wasn't it that a holiday thing that I I remember sitting on the coach and I was picked out because I was a big bloke and they said right you're going to be Tarzan today and we went to this boiling hot beach I think we were out in Greece or something and I had to drink this huge funnel of cocktail they'd made up, run out to the sea, pick Jane up, who was a random girl in the sea, spin around this pole 10 times, come back, and then they pour more down my neck in like 100 degrees of heat. And then I literally threw up everywhere and was ill for the whole afternoon. I was obviously completely dehydrated. But these kind of things back in yeah. the day were just... Like what they said, oh, this is such a laugh, this is brilliant. But as you just said, some people, they grow out of that and they go, you know, I'm going to settle down for family. And, I, you know, it changes in a healthy way for them. But for me, it just carried on. And that's really, that's really key. That's kind of, kind of what you say, like people grow out of it. And I think that's where I probably got to. I know we'll, we'll move forward. But, you know, just hearing you say those sort of stories, 18 to 30, I'm just getting massive, massive, am I allowed to swear? I'm not going to flashbacks of just like hideous situations that uh, I've been I remember one actually I, worked, I did a ski season in Verbier and I'll never forget standing at they had a shots bar downstairs in this bar and that's where I spent most of my night you know and I was I had definitely I was a, a larger girl then again so I guess I was compensating for all I thought I was um, and I remember just having a shot and then just literally throwing up on my shoes mm. in the bar and then not thinking anything of it and then just carrying on I mean what the actual was I how is that okay like how is that funny and then you would wake I I get that you wake up the next morning and it is a laugh it is a laugh I I remember another time me and my friend couldn't work out who had been sick but actually someone could have choked on that sick you know like I I look back now and I and I it gives me it makes it scares me and I and I feel sad slightly that something ever let one get to that stage but I think we've all been there We've all done it, but like we say, it's it's where it then manifests itself as you get older and older, you know, into your 40s. Well, it changes, doesn't it? Like a lot of relationships, you know, like a long marriage, like a long partnership, it starts off fun, um, you take risks and you enjoy yourself. But for me, it changed as soon as I started to drink indoors um, because it was never enough going to the pub. You know, I'd always come home and have what they say in the old days, a nightcap. But the nightcap could be four cans of diamond white or a bottle of wine. And then um, I become a solitary drinker because I couldn't drink enough at the pub. You know, everyone was slower than me. And that's where the relationship changes, you know, and uh, and that's where I got myself into trouble. What stage of your life did you notice that things changed for you with your drinking? I think it's hard because I'd say I probably had a, a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol for quite a long time it's just recognizing it isn't it because actually if everyone is slightly in that similar pattern it's very easy to always think you're okay and actually I remember recently and then I'll come back to that sharing that post that you did Monday I'm not going to drink Tuesday I'm not going to drink Wednesday all bad day have a drink Thursday Friday Saturday and I shared that with obviously my my community and a lot of the mums down here and they're like oh my god oh my god that's me you know, and it's like, okay, well, if that is you, then you need to recognize that that is a dysfunctional pattern. And also it's the way you talk to yourself and you make it okay to do that. And it's okay to do this. 
Um, so I would say going back that I don't know at what time it changed. All I know is the light bulb moment was was last year when I felt so ill. But I would say that for a good, well, obviously I didn't drink when I was pregnant. I was so ill. But other than not being pregnant, I have probably always made an excuse to have a drink. And I've never been one to have one or two. I'm always the first person at the bar, often texting my friends, you know, I've got there half an hour early, probably two glasses of wine down before anyone's turned up. Where are you? I'll be the one propping up the bar. Ha ha ha. And probably not the last one to leave because I was obviously not feeling very well or most pissed. So probably the first one to leave. And I think I think my sort of defining moment of thinking was when I was beginning to realise like that we, we live some we live out in the country, we don't live in London. I was always panicking about how I was going to get to a party because I wanted to drink or get back from a party because I wanted to drink. Like there was never any, okay, well I'll drive and get us there. Or for me, that just felt it didn't sit com- it didn't sit comfortably with me. Where, where I was at didn't sit comfortably with me and hasn't for a while. Because like I said to you, alcohol for me has always been my my go-to in a times of crisis and my switch off and it turns off the noise. And you know, I had a lovely childhood. There are things that I I will talk about one day and I've said that to you. But I've very much used alcohol to drown out a lot of a lot of the, the things that I haven't wanted to, you know, it just drowns out the noise. You know, we've said it before, it drowns out the noise. It dumbs, the, it dulls down the feelings. That first drink that hits you, you know, veins and everything's fine and it's great. And then obviously you drink more. And I mean, God, and that's the other thing. I think maybe for me, alcohol was a way of letting loose because I would, I'd have two or three drinks. But then every party I'd end up in tears, crying about my whole life thank god then you wake up the next day and you think oh crap did I do that and actually what I needed to do was face my face those things sober right because only then can you truly accept them if you can wake up and get out of bed and face the day and look at what challenges have been in your way and go to bed sober and you've nailed it and you've thought about it and you've processed it and you're here and it's good and it's all okay sober right that's when you begin to make progress because if you're just dulling those feelings every time with alcohol it's just that vicious cycle and you're not going to face up to what's going to make you stronger. Yeah, it's uh, I, I often use this analogy of an old suitcase in the loft that you know's there and you know there's stuff in it, but to open the loft hatch and drag it towards you to look in is too hard sometimes. So for me, I, I, you, I was on that hamster wheel where I go round and round and round. Then I think, do you know what? Even by saying I'm going to take it easy next week was farcical really because... Yeah. I could never do that ever. I could never ever just have one. So if ever I went out and I had to drive, which was really rare, I wouldn't have any because if I had one, I would then want 10. So it's a lot easier for me not to have any. But when I would get in and it could be half 11, 12, I would start drinking then. That's how bad it was, which is ridiculous, right? So when I got to the stage where I thought I was, you know, I got to a stage where I had to give up drinking basically because my doctor told me that my health was terrible, like rock bottom, and I could die um, very soon. All of a sudden, I was in a way forced to drag this suitcase over from the loft and lift open the lid and sit with what was inside, plus give up drinking. And, and it was really, really difficult. But why did I lifted up the lid acknowledged what was inside and I closed it and put it in a corner and I thought okay it's not time for that I'm I'm aware of it but I'm not ready for that now and it's only recently that I've 
had the strength to look inside it because it's taken me two and a half years to get there. You know, yeah. so sometimes you have to really be mindful of the self-care in the beginning that you don't just lumber yourself with all these emotions from the past that you deal with the here and now for, for now, you know, it's so important to remember that because otherwise it can be so overwhelming. Yeah, no, definitely. And we've all got baggage, right? And I think that's, that's the thing. So however much we all try and think we haven't got demons, I'm sure we all have got something that is a trigger. I don't believe for one second that sometimes people are drinking the amount they drink for pleasure. I think they've got that suitcase and they just don't want to open it. Yeah. And then they're too scared by default to also talk about it. And I think, again, alcohol for me managed, I had eating disorders. And I would say that that um, if I couldn't control my eating, um, out, you know, it, it all sort of ties, I think, hand in hand. Yeah. And when I was drunk, the eating disorder went away because I couldn't feel it, you know. So, so, so it was, it's definitely a way. And now I don't drink. My eating is fine and it's all okay. Like, it, 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 it yeah. You know, it's it's definitely I've got that. My suitcase has come out of the attic and I'm still going through it. Yeah. But I'm not scared to go through it because I no, feel no. stronger than I've ever felt before. And that's amazing, you know, but sometimes it's about fine tuning and aligning things together. So where before you said, you know, if you didn't drink, your eating disorders would get out of hand and whatever. But sometimes yeah. you can just line them up better uh, yeah. and control them all. So, I mean, we were in touch last year and and you reached out to me and said you was having problems with alcohol had you just had enough then had you just thought do you know what I've I've really got to sort this out I think I'm trying to think when when the first time was there would have been a trigger that made me perhaps think that enough was enough I think it was I think it was I just didn't like the hold it had on me every day at five o'clock and that wasn't I'm not going to drink on a Monday or actually yes it would be I would try that I'm not going to drink on a Monday I'm not going to drink on a Tuesday and by Wednesday I would have a drink and then drink Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday and you know I, I would hear it sometimes I'd actually wake up on the Sunday and go okay let's do let's start from today and then by by one o'clock you're like you're making a lunch and it's like no you know that was always a good excuse and I know you like that one uh you know that Sunday lunch have a drink and I just wanted to see if I could do it um, and I think I'd tried it on my own and I'd done like 21 days and then I'd gone back. But when you go back, you go back hard. I think that that's the one thing I always found that was when I I think and then the first time I spoke to you and I'd done really well and I'd almost got to my 30 days and I'd said to you, I think I've got a grip on it now. I just said that to make myself feel better. And I know deep down now I didn't have a grip on it. I just wanted a bloody drink. Right. And it's it's that brilliant thing where we can just we how our mind connects with what we want to what we want to hear, Mm. you know, and what we want to do being two such totally different things. The way we can just convince ourselves, you know, that you deserve a drink because yeah, I deserved a drink because I'd done 28 days. It wasn't like I wanted one and I was craving one. And and that was kind of why. And that was what was my way of getting out of it. Okay, Dave. Yeah, I've got a handle on this because I didn't want to. I guess let people down. So you think, okay, how do I, how, how, what's the gentle way out? And then I think every time that happened, it just did get progressively worse. And again, you know, I, it was fine because I think this is you know, my life was going on, and I was still doing my day job, and I was still teaching spin, or by then still doing everything. But I was beginning to drink a little bit more on this last time when I reached out to you, and as we've spoken about, my symptoms of menopause were 
horrific. Everything was just shit, properly shit last year. Like in alcohol was just one of the things that I thought was helping me, but it really, really wasn't. I mean, the whole menopause conversation's massive, isn't it? When you drink alcohol and and now you don't, has it made things a lot easier for you? Yeah, it has. It has. It's been, as you know, a tough year with my dad. And actually I'm having slight anxiety at the moment because I can't actually get to him. And this week has, was it this week? When was it? Sophie got positive on a covid test and I realized I couldn't go I literally said to my husband get out the like I was there I was ready to just go fuck it Mm. because I'm stuck in quarantine again I can't get to my dad but then you know you'd walk you go at those moments it's the time just to remove yourself from everybody go for a walk think how far you've come and then of course my mind does that brilliant thing of of it's so clever the mind even after six months saying well what are you actually doing this for what are the benefits oh look can't you see yourself sitting outside having a laugh having a drink you know that's what you need to be doing and and then you know you do get the old friend that says oh for christ's sake have a drink you deserve it you've you know you've got so much on your plate at the moment you know sit outside and so there's all these voices all these things telling you what you should what what And I know deep down if I then stop and pause and think how terrible I felt last year with my anxiety, with my heart palpitations. Yes, I'm still feeling slightly anxious, but would I not be feeling doubly worse if I had a drink? And I know that this might not be forever. This is how I'm living this at the moment. Okay, this is how I have to live it for me is that at the moment, this is what I need to be doing to a be an ultimate health my my business is going from strength to strength thanks to quitting alcohol there are so many opportunities that have come that I don't think I would have taken or even tried to do if I was still drinking and so 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 I'm in a really good place for now and I would like to say yeah of course I'll have a drink maybe in a year's time but it's never going to be one and I'm scared because I don't want to have to go through all of this again if I was coming from a place where someone had quit because they were only having the odd one and they just felt it was pointless and then they wanted to go back. I can see why people would. But if you're coming from a place where actually by the end of December, it was ridiculous. And I felt like my waking thought was, oh, I'm not going to drink today. And I bet there are women out there that can resonate with this. Um, you know, you get up, you've had a couple of drinks. Like, I'm not going to drink today. It's rather like that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday thing. But by 10 o'clock, when you're feeling OK from the night before, oh, that's what I feel all right. Oh, I can have another, I can have a drink tonight. You know, I don't want to be, I don't want to control it anymore. I mean, sorry, it, it to control me. Um, I've taken back what it had taken from me and, and I don't want to go down that route again. Um, and it's funny because I have, again, had friends who said, you know, you weren't an alcoholic. I don't understand. You haven't, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think I was or what I was. And I'm not saying that I was, I'm saying I had a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol that, at this point in my life, had got out of control, and with my menopause, perimenopause, it was it was destroying me, and I had to do something about it. And so many women are in this situation; they, they don't identify with being an alcoholic. But I think that again, that's what you, you say: we have to remove that stigma because it's it, that's not a reason to necessarily give up. It, it's if it is it's it's if you're not in the right place where you want to be, and alcohol's not helping you like I often say what's the point I didn't even I didn't even enjoy it like by the end of December it was just a thing like I just remember new like just before midnight on New Year's Eve being so grateful that I was doing dry January sober Dave I felt like I'd I'd got to the got to a place where I could finally get out of this hole yeah and support online support's okay because um uh, I I went to my first sober social a few weeks in 
and I was petrified. But when I left there, I felt like a different person. And I'll just pull you up on one thing when you said um, a lot of women feel like that. A lot of men do as well. Yeah. Because when not all men were like me, where I was drinking ridiculous amounts, you know, some guys, they do go days without, and it's the weekend binges they have with the football. And then with work, and you're right what you say, Kate, it's, I always say, it's not the quantity, it's how it makes you feel. And you could be having one or two glasses a night, but if that's a habit and it affects your health or your relationship or your sleep, then it's a problem. And that's why I'm always banging on about the stigma of alcoholism and trying to educate people around me that don't quite get it. When I was drinking, my wife, Em, um, never got it because she used to say to me, why can you not just share a bottle of wine? I don't understand it. And I would say, I, I don't know. I'm just not wired that way. That was my default answer. But I said to her after, do you think I was being devious by hiding wine under the bed and in the wardrobes because I wasn't it's because I needed it because half a bottle of wine each with you wasn't enough for me it was a starter for me and I wanted the main course and the dessert and she knows a lot more now about the whole thing and and she feels a little bit sort of awkward about the fact that she judged me that way because it is a disease and it's you know alcohol is a, a hugely highly addictive drug and when like yourself, when you come back to me and said, you know, I think I've got a handle on it. And the external voices were encouraging your internal voices because you were saying to yourself, I think I'm all right. I think, And, and the external voices, your friends, I were saying like, well, you're all right. You can have a drink, go on, egging you on. And then you're so easily uh, encouraged then to go, do you know what, sod it, I'm going to have a drink. Yeah. But then when you get back to that routine, it's a bit like getting back to an abusive ex, isn't it? When you have a wild night and you wake up in the morning and he's laying there and it's like, oh, what have I done? You know, yeah. and, and it's not long before those old patterns start to appear back in your life and you're thinking I'm back here and also I think if you come off once right it has to be if or if you do decide to go back it has to be your total and utter decision and you've got to have really thought it through and thought about moments like that waking up because I know I've texted you haven't I on a couple of occasions when I've properly woken up in the morning like (gasps) yeah oh my god I drank and it's it's been a nightmare. I've had a nightmare that I've been out with my friends. I've got absolutely shit face. And then I've woken up and thank God it's a dream. And so I keep telling myself to remember how I felt when I woke up that morning from my dream, because that's how I'm going to feel if I go back. Unless maybe in a year or two years time, when perhaps my menopause symptoms have gone down, when perhaps maybe I'm in a better place, maybe I feel like, an, like I can have the one. I mean, I'm saying it, but I don't think I'll ever be able to. But if I did ever go back, that has to be my ultimate, ultimate, my choice from me, not from any peer pressure. But, you know, for the now, like I said, it's not it's not on my radar. No. I love life. There is no, there is no, there's no thought anymore. And I've, I've had a client recently who I did ask to give up for six weeks on a program I think she did five and she's gone back saying I'm just drinking at the weekends but I I know that's a slippery slope to climbing it back in and there is now no like we've had the football there was I have had no anxiety around there's been a a couple of associations you know oh there's not going to be that really fun vibe and all of us screaming and da 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 but there is like it's I, I think it's your mind plays tricks on you like we know and it predicts what 
did happen and it's not going to be like that right it automatically says there's not going to be that vibe because you're not drunk and yeah. rolling around and screaming at the tv but oh my god we were all screaming at the, at the tv the other night we'll all be screaming at the tv on sunday night the thing is i might remember the score and i probably won't swear in front of the children um and i won't actually just want to consume you know be there just drinking and actually probably not even watching the football i guess using the football as an excuse to have a drink you know actually i'm watching the football because i want to watch the football not as an excuse to sort of have a drink and you know it's all those little triggers i think that people have got to you've got to get by and now there is no five o'clock urge like i'm so surprised sometimes when when things happen and, and what was lovely actually was last night i did a live i did an igtv and then i had the whole night with the family and i'm really beginning now to even more six months in um, soak up those moments you know even stuck in isolation which is pushing pushing me actually uh, it is definitely making me a better person each day that i go for longer and I think that's the thing isn't it we all want that quick fix whether it's exercise whether it's a diet whether it's quitting alcohol we just want to stop and we want to feel amazing as soon as we've done it and that's not the way it's going to happen you have to give it time it is it is a marathon it's not a sprint but just look at the community that you were talking about and what you've created and the support there and look to the people that have been doing it for longer and look at their amazing transformations and let that be your kind of your driving force. It's certainly my driving force. You know, on the moments I feel crap, I'll always reach out and somebody else is finding it tough too, but you know that you can get through it. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And that's why I'm always uh, honest with my journey as well, because like last Saturday, I put it out there on Instagram that I was struggling, but at no point did I want a drink. It, yeah. it was the fear of missing out of the people walking in the afternoon in their out, out clothes. And I thought, God, they are literally really celebrating. There's me not even wanting to watch it tonight because I was sulking like a baby. I really was. And I took my dog out at half time and I heard the roar when Harry Kane scored just after half time. And my initial reaction was, thank God I'm not amongst that, yeah. you know? And then it made me think, do you know what? It's true what the mind plays with you. It, it gives you a full sense of security, doesn't it? It makes you feel like you're missing out when in fact you're not. You're, you're gaining the joy of missing out, as you say. I always say this, no matter what part of the journey, it's like riding a bike. And, and some parts of the journey, you're going to be riding up a, a steep hill and you either get off and throw your bike in the bushes or you keep pedaling, get your head down. You get to the top and it's a lovely straight. The views are amazing. And then you go downhill, but then you've got another hill. It's like that. And yeah. you've got to keep pedaling throughout because there's no point mm -hmm. saying that everything to do with sobriety is absolutely incredible because it's real. It's There's real experiences. There's days that you are really fed up and down like you lately. But yeah. there's areas that you've really pulled together. And you've got through it and you should be really proud of yourself because it would have been easy to go, you know, sod it, I'm having a drink. And and some yeah. people do. But with that, I always say, look, if that happens, get up again, start again and use that as evidence. So next time, and I'm not talking about when you first pick that drink up, I'm talking about the first thoughts that come into your head. So it could be in the morning and you've woke up fed up, tired and thought, kill a drink later. And that is the beginning. Yeah, but you've also, so the thing I always say to myself now with everything is you are not your thoughts, you know? And so it's a thought, right? It is a thought. It is a thought. Have a drink. Don't exercise. Eat the chocolate. Like you're not doing it. You have to take yourself to do the action of your thought. So there is a, there is a stopping point between your thought and doing it. 
and that's the time to go okay right I would I want to drink do you really want to drink have that flipping conversation with that person with that thought and actually by the time you finish the conversation that urge for the drink would have gone and you've fought that thought as it were so you've kind of got to you know again bring it to alcohol when you wake up in the morning so bring it to exercise I don't want to exercise I don't want to exercise you do get out of bed you, you ignore that person ignore that thought and do it because you'll feel better and it's the same thing ignore that driving urge to go and have that drink because you will feel better and often actually when I get that thought um I will I'll go and pour I will go and make myself a nice drink okay so I'm going through the motions of what I think it is that makes me feel better. So it might be a nice kombucha on ice. It might be tonic water with a squeeze of, of lemon in it. So if it's like, you know, it's my sort of alcohol-free gin and tonic. And I'll do that with my little bowl of crisps and I'm having my ritual and that's become my ritual. Then once I'm done with that, I am totally, that, that thought is a million miles away. And it's just doing that every day, little habits, little tweaks that's made it, made it so much easier. And I have invested in some really nice expensive kombucha which comes in a bottle, you know, and it pops and the bottle pops. And I'm going to have that probably at the football. And I have it. We've had people for dinner a while back, obviously not when we were isolating. And I was there, just me and my glass of bubbly rosé kombucha, awake until one in the morning. That was a struggle. But I, I didn't feel that it made kind of any difference to me that everyone else was drinking and I wasn't. And that for me was huge, like properly huge. So, yeah, it's been it's been a battle, especially, as you know, this year. Uh, with my dad and I've had the conversations about the things that I will talk about one day having brought that suitcase down with the people that I've needed to have have the conversations with and I've managed to remain calm and talk about them sensibly so which I wouldn't have been able to do so I feel it's made me stronger because I'm battling those things with a sober clear mind and um, let's just move on to your fitness because you are literally always doing workouts online you're incredible has your fitness improved immensely since giving up drinking yeah I think it definitely has I think I've definitely got stronger I don't quite know how I was functioning really before but you know the effects of alcohol uh from the night before on a workout you know dehydration more susceptible to injury I mean it's 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 huge so Yes, actually, I went and did this ridiculous, actually, which was really good fun, this thing called Turf Games in Ealing on, on Saturday. And I didn't train for it. I didn't actually realise that I probably should have trained for it and I should have done. But I did it and I was lifting just as heavy as all the 25-year-olds that are on my team. Admittedly, they probably would have liked me to have lifted a little bit quicker. But, you know, I, I did it. I don't think I would have been able to do that at all six months ago. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now and I wouldn't be as passionate and driven to help women had I not probably been on the journey myself because I'm able to take a I'm able to look back now and kind of go okay yeah I've come I've come a long way I'm a lot fitter a a lot fitter than I was I don't I mean I I find it bizarre when I think about I I remember one workout I did uh it was a new year's workout obviously possibly the new year and I actually had to delay it it wasn't a morning workout I had to do it at five o'clock in the afternoon because I actually couldn't function I still did it but you know it's not really clever is it kind of I'm promoting wellness and health and well-being yet you know there was that secret part that was was drinking way too much and nobody would have known like and like I said to you it wasn't that it was you know, at that, at that, I could have carried on. I could have carried on, and I and I would still be here. It wasn't that I was putting my life 
well, I probably was putting my life at risk. Actually, if we go back to that menopause thought, you know, with all the myths around HRT and breast cancer and cancers that it causes, you are more susceptible, you are more likely to get cancer from having two drinks a night, two alcoholic drinks a night as a woman than you are um, on HRT. So yes, I'm sure it's somewhere along the line, if I'd have carried on, there would have been some pretty big red flags this year. Oh, it's fascinating, isn't it? And, and what's fascinating is when you can train so hard and then pour that stuff into your body. You know, you might oh my God. you eat and... Dave, do you know what? I would do half marathons and uh, I did the Crawley half marathon. I did. And I did it in my fastest time, one hour, 35, straight to the pub, hadn't eaten, probably bottle of rosé. Mm. I mean, I hate to think I was I was fine. I mean, I was obviously drunk, but I, I my body was fine the next day and it recovered because it was used to it. But I hate to think what what actually the damage I was doing that I couldn't see or the damage that you're doing that you can't feel. Mm. Um, and I think that's kind of that's kind of the, the key, isn't it? And actually, that's the sort of thing I say about exercising and why we should exercise don't do exercise for the way it's going to make you look do exercise for the way it's going to make you feel and what it's going to do on the inside out okay so with alcohol you might not be able to see what it's doing on the outside but by god it's doing something on the inside i I think when i was drinking everyone could see what it's doing on my outside trust me i look bloody awful (laughs) but so what now you look 75 so you're all right thank you darling (laughs) i was 85 a couple of months ago so i'm doing well so what's next for you now then what what's ahead of you i have got some really exciting things coming up which i'm not allowed to talk about oh uh i know but that's exciting, isn't it? Because then people want to follow follow the journey. What is next? So I think what's next for me is to carry on on this path of um, sobriety because I'm loving it. And it, as I said, it's it's opening a lot of doors um, and opportunities. Not the fact that I'm sober, but it's the fact that I'm able to do more because I'm not tired. I'm not fatigued. I'm not having terrible night's sleep. So I guess onwards and upwards, growing my community. I've changed my offering online, which I'll tell you about another time, because I think the other thing it's done, which I know you will um, you will like, is that I think when I was drinking, I was always doing too much because I felt like I could. I'd have all these amazing ideas in my drunken stupor and then you'd go and you would try and do them and then you um, you take on too much. And obviously over the last six months, as I've uh, learned to appreciate what I'm capable of um, I've had to look at some of the things I'm doing so I'm just taking a step back from a few things to put my family and myself first which is something I've probably not done for a while and to change a few things that I'm doing online to give that space and to enable me to do a few of the things that I do love I've got two fitness festivals coming up one in Wales next year and one in Oxford in September and again these are all things that I would have been too scared to have gone to to have done to put myself forward for so yeah onwards and upwards lots more to come and helping other women obviously just because that's my demographic not men but get out of perhaps this cycle of of the the terrible cycle that they find themselves in and you know moving moving onwards and upwards and getting stronger it's fantastic and when you've got all these events coming up it gives you uh, something to aim for as well doesn't it because if you're training for them, I mean, I saw that thing you did the other day and I was literally in awe of you lifting yeah. those weights, like literally I was, how are you doing that? It was so brilliant to watch. But it's sheer guts and determination. And that's it. You know, I I want to dispel the myths of menopause and I want people to see that 
women in their 40s are just as strong and capable as any, you know, sorry, as we were in our 30s. And that this is the time to kind of get rid of all of those that you get rid of all that toxicity in your life, be it alcohol, be it disordered eating, be it whatever. We come with so much baggage by the time we've got to kind of 40. Start afresh and go for it. And that's kind of what I want to uh, share with other women because I think sometimes by the time we get there we feel forgotten and we're not necessarily represented in the right light um, and I'm going to do more of those events I'm going to train for them though because I I did put my body through quite something and I've actually only really just been able to walk properly no that's I haven't I was only able to walk properly probably by Tuesday or Wednesday and lift my arms up so definitely train properly I also want to share I want to get a group of women I want to get like get menopause warriors and we're all going to go to events like that and um, I would never have had the guts or the courage to do that because actually I don't think I would be doing it if I was still drinking because I'd much rather on a Saturday have been drinking than been going to a fitness event you know and that's the other thing I'm doing more I'm doing more things that I want to do because I'm not going oh don't want to do that because I'm going to have to have I want to have a drink or oh, can't do that because I'm going to be hung over you know it, it, it opens so many doors because those doors are always open because you're not shutting them because you're hung over or drunk yeah it's true and when when even if you were drinking in the week the next day you're going to feel lethargic you procrastinate and whatever and if you're training for something like this you can't really afford to do that can you so no it's a win-win. And I want to say, Kate, you're such a role model, honestly. I, I've been following you for a couple of years now. I can't believe we haven't met. Um, we will. We will. I would have I been there. I would have been there, to, well, you know, on your sober evening. Because, A, we can't go on our holiday because we're in isolation. And obviously now we're in isolation. So you have to do another one. I am. I'm going to do a Christmas one. So anyone that's listening to this podcast can come to my sober Christmas party and meet Kate as well. Yay! I'm going to meet you before bloody Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And uh, I just think it's been an absolute lovely experience talking to you, Kate. It really has, as always, and you're very... Well, I just want to say that, that I wouldn't have got here without you, and you know that there are millions and millions of other people that wouldn't have got here without you, especially that sober Jan group. You know, I know maybe there have been drop-offs and that you've got your sober May as well. You know, thank you on behalf of all of them, because I'm sure not all of them can say thank you. But you, you know, you have been incredible in the sober community and helping so many of us get to where we are. So I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. I mean, obviously I'd be here, but I wouldn't be like here, here. Oh, I feel all emotional now. I do. Oh, don't get emotional. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. So I, thank you. I'll take it. Thank you. Thank Good. you, darling. And thanks for joining me on One for the Road. And uh, let's get together soon. And lift Definitely. some weights. Thank you. Take it easy, Kate. Thank you. Bye. 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 I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. One for the Road can be found on all the usual podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you have a moment, then please do leave a review so that more listeners can enjoy the conversation. You can find me on Instagram at SoberDave, or drop me an email at info at davidwilsoncoaching.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great week, and take care.